Let's pray as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Father, as always, we come with many distractions, with many questions, with many troubles, and we also come with gratitude and faith and joy. Lord, however we have come today, we are grateful that you welcome us and that you speak to us through your word. We ask that as we listen to the gospel of Mark, that you help us to see Jesus and that you, through your spirit, draw all of us closer to you through these few minutes together this morning. Amen. So we're working through the gospel of Mark in a big picture, not hitting every verse or even every chapter, but, but working through the gospel of Mark and, and reflecting on this question that Jesus asks at the midpoint of the gospel to his disciples, who do you say I am? And so one guiding question we have is, is who do we say Jesus is and, and, and who are we in relation to Jesus? For today, we're going to think especially about who does, who does Jesus belong to and who belongs to to Jesus. So keep that question in mind, that question of belonging this morning. And we're going to read from Mark chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 7 to verse 35. So hear the word of the Lord, Mark 3, verse 7 to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions around the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For, though, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. So there was a, a time in the first couple years of our marriage where Laura was working night shifts as a nurse. She'd work 312s a, 312s a week, and usually I'd make dinner before she went off to work, and then she'd take some leftovers. And there was one time that I was making pancakes, and, and I put baking soda instead of baking powder into the pancakes. And some of you recognize the problem, and some people are more like me, like, what, it's baking? It's, well, it should work, right? It doesn't work. So we make the pancakes, and we sit down to eat them, and they taste awful. And if you've ever done this, you'll know that using baking soda instead of baking powder and pancakes gives kind of this, it's almost a metallic taste. And metallic tasting pancakes you do not want, right? I got everything else right. They were cooked great. The rest of the mix was good. It looked good. But it was still off, unpleasant, not what we wanted. Now, most of, these, most of these characters that we encounter in this story, as they interact with Jesus, we, we see that they get some things right. There are some ways that we, we can have sympathy and respect for them. But in all kinds of different ways, every character except Jesus in this story gets some things just, just not right. The mix isn't there. And so we're going to talk about, for the first half or so of this sermon, about how despite their claims on Jesus, despite the ways that all these groups would say, oh, I can, I can define this man, or I can say it has to be this way, how they, all, how they all get it wrong, how they all, in fact, in some ways, don't belong to Jesus, and certainly Jesus does not belong to them in the ways that they think he should. So let's start by talking about the crowd. So as we frequently see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, Jesus withdraws from the crowd, and the crowd chases him down. And Jesus is very gracious with the crowd, and he gives them what they want, but, but they keep on prouding and, and press, pressing in on him. And, and there's actually the, the Greek word behind he needs to be in a boat so the crowd doesn't crowd him is crush him. Jesus needs to protect himself from the crowd because, because they are so desperate to get what he has that they don't care about him. They just want the healing. They just want the freedom. And even... Even scholars think the cries of, of the demons here, you are the son of God, seems to be those demons trying to get a handle on Jesus, trying to, trying to get him on his back foot, trying to get some kind of ownership over him. That whole section with the crowd, Jesus is very gracious, but what we see, what we see isn't great. And the crowd these days, our, our broader culture, the, the whole West really has to come to Jesus for all kinds of good things. I've been reading a book lately by Glenn Scrivener called The Air We Breathe, and he traces out all kinds of ways that current Western culture lives in the air of Christianity. In ways we don't even think, we, we depend on Jesus, and we want what Jesus has to give, but, but we don't recognize it, and we don't want the whole picture of Jesus. We just want him to help us out. Let me give you one example. We all, at least I hope we all, we all pretty much in the West believe that, that every human being has worth and is basically equal. And that actually is tremendously non-intuitive. And I would say most cultures around the world and throughout time don't actually believe that. That there are always the important, valuable people and the much less important, much more insignificant people. 
And our culture today has majored on equality and everybody is the same and, and they're drawing from Christian roots, but, but then we don't want to even let the authority of God or Jesus define us. We want to say, well, I can express my individuality however I want. I want Jesus, I want the Christian faith to give me this platform of equality, but then I want to be on that platform and I want to show off and we all even those of us here today are probably mostly expressive individualists. We think that we should be able to do our own thing. And so with the crowd here in Mark, they want to do their own thing. They want Jesus to help them accomplish their goals. And if they have to crush Jesus to get it, okay. And we see in the Gospels that the crowd ultimately turns against Jesus. And when he isn't the Messiah they want, they want him dead. The disciples. Well, surely the disciples are better, right? These are the people that Jesus, the text tells us, these are the people he called because he specifically wanted these 12 to be his closest followers. Surely, surely these 12 famous followers of Jesus are better than the crowd. Well, yes, and then again, no. And even today, religious leaders, religious leaders, surely... Surely pastors, surely the extra special church people, surely they're better than the crowd, right? And maybe we're different than the crowd, but, but I'm not sure we can always say that we religious people or even we religious leaders are better than the crowd. In fact, if you have any kind of religious position, whether it's volunteer or paid, whether it's formal or informal, there is this special tremendous temptation to be proud I'm a, I'm a Sunday school teacher, I'm an elder, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a pastor. I get to speak for God, and I get to be extra close to God, and so the rest of you had better, better recognize my special status. I think the church has had a reckoning the last few decades in terms of church leaders' tremendous failures, and, and even the ones that don't make the news. All human beings, all of us religious people, all of Jesus' closest followers even, have a tendency to fail. And even if we look at the 12 apostles, Peter, who Jesus calls the rock, sometimes he's a rock of faithfulness and sometimes he is just as difficult as a rock. He bashes his head on stupid things and he says crazy things and, and he wants to define Jesus in so many different ways that don't actually fit with who Jesus is to the point that at one point in this gospel, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And that's Peter. Wow. And James and John are called by Jesus Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And that sounds great, but it isn't necessarily. My, my kids and I have been watching some classic Disney movies, and there's one called The Son of Flubber, where, where the hero of the story figures out how to cause rainstorms with this machine, and he gets, he gets kind of mad at one of the villains, and so he creates this thunderstorm in the villain's car. And so this guy is trying to drive with lightning zapping him in rain, and and living with James and John at this point probably would have been a lot like having a thunderstorm in your car on the ride home today. Just unbearable. At times, these guys were just a pain. And then the list ends with Judas, who betrays Jesus. Even Jesus' closest followers, they don't get the mix right. They don't, they don't really get hold of Jesus in the way they think they should. And now let's talk about the teachers of the law. 
And these teachers of the law, they come down from Jerusalem. These are, these are the religious elites, but even more than that, they are the cultural elites. They are the people who get to make the rules and enforce the rules, and everybody has to look up to them whether you like it or not. And they come from, from a more divine working perspective. These are people who, who for hundreds of years, God has been working with these, these Israelites as his chosen people, and so they should really get Jesus. And from a human perspective, they have spent their lives learning about religion and making the rules, so they should really get Jesus. They are, after all, the authorities. And today we're in a situation where, where again, our culture has been so influenced by Christianity that, that many of the cultural and political and social authorities assume some level, that is, some level of truth that is commensurate with Christianity, but, but they don't want the whole package. I heard a story recently of a literature professor who assigned her students at a pretty prestigious university to read the Sermon on the Mount. Just read the Sermon on the Mount and reflect on what that could mean for you. And, and the students came back and they hated it. They said, this, this, this sermon is unbelievable. The things that it asks us to do, the standard it wants to hold us to, this is, this is not nice. We do not want we do not want to follow Jesus in his teaching. And in the last, I would say, even couple decades, the, the church has gone, and, and even Jesus has gone from being seen as a largely positive figure to being seen as promoting all kinds of evil and immorality and terrible things. The cultural forces around us look at, look at the New Testament and they say, Ew, who wants that? And that's what the teachers of the law, the cultural elites from Jerusalem come, and, and they look at Jesus and they go, oh, Beelzebub, the man has a demon, and it's by demonic forces that he casts out demons. You could not in that time and place, or probably in this time and place, come up with anything worse to say about Jesus than to say he's a representative of Satan himself. And yet that is, that is what we see these people who should be able to get it right do. And I want to I take a minute and talk about how Jesus responds to them because there is that language of, of a sin that won't be forgiven, of this unforgivable sin. And, and some of us, I would guess, are really troubled by that, that as we, as we reflect on our Christian life, we say, well, what if I've committed the unforgivable sin? What if, what if I've done something somehow that, that means that God can no longer love me, that I can't any longer belong to Jesus? And, and, and some of you think, well, why in the world would anybody think that? And some of you are thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm really concerned about this on a regular basis. Well, what do we do with that? And the answer that we, we have that I think is the, the best answer and the true answer is that if you are concerned about having committed the unforgivable sin, if you're concerned about that, that is a guarantee that you have not. If you are concerned that you have committed some kind of sin that Jesus will reject you for, that is a sure sign that you have not committed this sin that Jesus will reject you for. Because the sin that Jesus is speaking about here is to look at Jesus and to declare him satanic and demonic and evil. And of all the sins in the world, the one that God does not forgive for is setting yourself up against God unrepentedly and flagrantly and without reservation. The only way you can step outside of God's forgiveness is if you declare God himself to be evil. 
And that's what the teachers of the law hear. They see all these good things that Jesus is doing. They hear him teaching and calling people to God, and they say, ah, it's a Beelzebub. And Jesus looks back at them and says, if you say that, there is no hope for you. Because if you have seen God himself in the flesh and you have rejected him, there is nothing left. And then we come to what might actually be the most challenging group in this text, and that's Jesus' family. And Jesus' family comes to him, and and his mother and his brothers, they say he's out of his mind. And they come to collect him and bring him home because he's embarrassing the family. Jesus' family. And that should challenge us on a couple levels. I think many of us, especially who grew up in the family of faith and and who have belonged to Jesus our whole life, sometimes feel like we have a special claim on Jesus, as if we should be able to define who he is and what he does and doesn't do. And we want to make sure he doesn't embarrass us. We're just like Jesus' mother and brothers, who even though they they knew something of how special Jesus was, they still weren't, weren't really sure about everything he was getting up to. And they kind of wanted to distance themselves, and they kind of wanted to quiet him down. But I think these days we have another temptation, too, that's connected to that one, but a little different. That we think that our nuclear family is the be-all and end-all of the good life. And so we pursue having our kids in all the right sports and doing all the right activities, and we, we helicopter parent, and, and we want everything to be just right for our family, and anything that interferes with that we have to push to the side, even, even if it's Jesus. And our families are wonderful gifts from God, but even God's best gifts can become idols if we aren't careful. And so we have, to, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, are we coming to Jesus and saying, no, that's a little too crazy. We're going to pass on that because, because this is what my family really needs right now. And what we see in Jesus' family here is, is we think that they're, they're trying to save face. In an honor-shame culture, Jesus is kind of embarrassing them. And so what they want to do is they want to cover that over and make sure that their family name and family honor are preserved. And Jesus doesn't allow any of these groups to define who he is. And, and instead, he declares who belongs to him. And what Jesus says is his brothers and sisters are those who believe in him. Jesus defines who belongs to him and who he belongs to. And he says, I belong to the people who believe in me. And we need to let Jesus define this relationship. It is not about any special status we have. It's not about any kind of learning or whatever. It's not about any of that. It's about how are we connected to the Lord. Now, you could hear this text as a text actually of judgment because Jesus says people who who do the will of his Father are those who belong to him. And, and you could pull out the Ten Commandments and you could look at it and say, Commandment 9, Part 137, Stroke A, Part B, I failed on, and so I can't possibly belong to God because I've, I've committed that sin. And we don't think that's the message Jesus is giving here. Jesus is not saying, If you don't keep all the law, you aren't my person. In fact, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, what Jesus comes and announces is that the kingdom of God has come, and so it's time to repent and believe the good news. It's time to repent and believe the good news that Jesus is the Son of God sent to save us. And it seems like that is what it means here to do the will of God, to repent, to turn away, 
to change our lives, to, to knock anything else out of the primary spot in our lives and to put Jesus there. And then to put ourselves in Jesus' care, to declare that he is our ultimate allegiance and he is the one who we will hold on to no matter what, above all other things. And Jesus says, if that, if that is our life, if we have even begun to, to put other things to the side and to repent and to turn away, and if we have begun to turn toward Jesus and to believe in Him as, as our Savior, to believe the good news of the gospel, then we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Then we really, truly belong to Him. And then that turns around, and that can, that can transform everything. You see, Jesus welcomes even the crowd, even people who would be happy to crush him as long as they get their problems solved. Jesus still heals them. And you know, the disciples, these, these men who fail him so terribly in so many ways, nonetheless, they are the ones who Jesus wanted to be with him for his earthly journey. And you know, we don't see a lot of religious leaders repent in the Gospels, but, but the offer is open. And the offer is open even for people who have rejected Jesus to come back around. And God is tremendously gracious in accepting even those who have before rejected him. And family. God gives us a family that is, that is defined by his fatherhood and by, by Jesus' work for us. You do not earn your way into this family. You do not need to, to keep up the family name. What you need is to hold on to Jesus' name. And that is all that's required. And that last, that last image especially, I think in these really difficult times when we are so alienated and so isolated and so lonely, I think that is incredible good news for us that Jesus, Jesus looks around this sanctuary. He looks around our workplace. He looks around our neighborhood. He looks around our physical families and he says, everyone who believes in me belongs to me. Everyone who believes in me belongs to me. And we might still feel alone, and we might still feel alienated and isolated, and we still have troubles in this life, but, but we are never really alone if we believe in Jesus. If you are in a period of your life where you feel like, like you're in a fog and no one can connect with you, Jesus is there. He really, truly is, and and if you reach out to him, you will find that he has always been reaching out to you. And along with that personal assurance, there is this corporate call for us, for us to embrace being brothers and sisters in Christ, for us to embrace being the family of God and so to embrace all, all who come, regardless of whether they truly believe in Jesus yet or not, we are called to be hospitable and welcoming to everybody because we have been welcomed by the Lord, because we are his brothers and sisters. So that, that evening, quite a number of years ago now, when I really messed up the pancakes, Laura and I ate a little bit, and then we, we gave up, and I said, we're going to go to Panera. And we, uh, not that Panera is the most wonderful place in the world, but but, you know, we were paying off student debts, and I was in grad school, and Laura was wearing it. We didn't have a ton of money, so we didn't go out a lot, but, but we were going to go out. And we went out, and I got my favorite. I got the broccoli cheddar soup and the turkey panini, and Laura got a chicken sandwich that she likes, and we got some extra for her to have lunch that night at work. And, and it was wonderful. 
And there was no baking soda or baking powder involved as far as I could tell. And they didn't mess anything up and it was a really good dinner. They got the mix right. And Jesus always gets the mix right as he brings us together, as he works out the circumstances of our life, as he, as he pulls together all the threads in our lives and our families. Jesus always gets the mix right. And today, today Jesus invites us to his meal. Today, Jesus invites us to experience, to be reminded, to be drawn into his presence again and to hear him say to us, if you believe in me, you belong to me. Everyone who repents and believes the good news is my brother and sister. Let us share in this family meal together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inviting us to worship this morning. And we thank you that through Jesus, you provide this meal for us. And Lord, wherever we are in our journey of faith with you, we pray today that you do convict us, that you help us to see how we might be going wrong like the crowd or the disciples or the leaders or or even Jesus' own physical family. Help us if we need to again to repent. And Lord, for all of us, help us more and more to believe that Jesus truly is our elder brother, that you truly are our heavenly father, and so that we can come to you and belong in your family. Amen.